You're listening to episode number 181 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. This is Sean Devine. I'm uh, I'm real happy today to be joined by Brian Cartarella from Dockyard. Hey, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing great. So I invited you on maybe a week ago after uh, seeing, what do you call this blog post? You put a blog post up on the uh, Dockyard blog called Reef Points, which was titled Lessons Learned, Three Years of Running a Software Consultancy. Mm-hmm. And I saw a bunch of people retweeted. I think that I follow you on Twitter, uh, and I think I did before I saw this article. But it was such an interesting uh, article that I, I thought we'd uh, talk about it. Great. So let's. Uh, well, before we get into that, why don't why don't you just introduce yourself in Dockyard so we've got some context? So I'm CEO of Dockyard. We're a Boston-based uh, web consultancy. Um, Despite this being the Ruby and Rails podcast, uh, we're not really doing Ruby and Rails much anymore. We started as a Rails consultancy about three years ago, but we've been uh, migrating over more heavily to client-side application development using Ember. Um, and I'm considering moving a lot of our back-end offerings over to Elixir and Phoenix as uh, I'm finding that technology to be more in line with the clients that we're acquiring nowadays. So the the podcast is mostly about Ember now too, cool. <laughs> ironically. Excellent. But uh, I haven't moved to uh, to Elixir, but um, but I, I do talk mostly about Ember at least for the last few episodes, which is uh, the second reason I wanted to have you on. Yeah, I saw that you had Trek on. Um, it's uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but I, uh, I plan on doing so. Yeah, it was a it was a very good episode. I think I've gotten more positive feedback about the last two Ember episodes, and I think all of the other episodes that we've done this past year. So it's uh, I think it's a popular thing to, to talk about. Cool. So uh, uh, let's uh, let's jump right in to talk about why write this blog post. So, so just to give people that haven't read it an idea, and I'll put a, a link in the, the show notes, but it, it takes uh, the reader through the last year and the sort of ups and downs on just about every dimension from people to finances to customers to strategy and is is pretty open kimono i mean it's pretty detailed so why do it um it's cathartic i guess is uh is probably the best um most concise answer i've done it um this is now the third one i should probably have put links to the other uh two um well technically there are three uh lesson like blog post title lesson learned it's kind of a series uh, but I should probably put links in there uh, as references. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the first one I wrote after six months, so it's first six months of running a software consultancy. The, uh, second one I did, I think after two years. Um, and then this one, um, I, I did after three years. So the first one was really more in response to my, I'm kind of a peevish, peevish person. I get annoyed at things pretty easily and I kind of let that fly on Twitter although I'm starting to get that under reins a little bit. <laughs> you, still, um, you still get a little bit annoyed on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Uh, well, Twitter is more or less just like, you know, it's it's streaming it's streaming your brain, right? So anything that crosses your mind, you're just like, oh, it takes no sec- uh, takes nothing to put into Twitter. I started using, uh, was it Buffer for a bit? And I put all my bad ideas in the Buffer, just as like, you know, get them off my chest and, uh, and then decide later on, okay, this is not very good. It shouldn't be out there. But anyway, I... <laughs> I stopped using buffer. Um, so uh, I didn't. A problem that I saw um, with um, 
I should probably have asked you beforehand if I'm allowed to swear on the podcast because I do a lot of swearing. And if not, I'll I'll try to keep that under under control. You you can though. I won't go crazy. Okay? Yeah, I'll I'll just say that there's a lot of bullshit that's around the the, the consulting industry, and um, it bothered me that there. If you look at like every most other consulting companies out there, they will just go on about how awesome they are, and they'll they'll talk about all their successes, and they'll say because. I think a lot of consulting companies uh, feel that unless they are projecting an image of success, that they're going to lose out on any potential clients that don't want to work with a loser in some way or someone that is not like always 100% successful. Now, to be fair, I think that's all business, by the way, not just consulting. uh, But I think it applies to consulting too. Here's my counter argument. From a perspective of somebody that is starting a new consulting agency, um, I think in general, uh, starting – Recreating success is actually very, very difficult. Uh, recreating failures is stupid easy. So nobody was sharing their their failure stories, saying like, "Oh, this is how I screwed up here, and this is what I did to correct it. Uh, this is how I screwed up over there." And so that was all just guarded knowledge that was really siloed in a lot of companies. Um, I had to learn along along my way, as do a lot of other people. And I I figured, okay, I I I did had a lot of screw ups. Um, I'm going to share those stories with people and hopefully someone will have less pain if they read this with knowing how to get through it or at least being able to say like, oh, I'm not the only one that you know, I screwed up in this way. Uh, so from a from a perspective of somebody that is looking to um, start a consultancy, uh, I was interested in sharing our stories. Um, and then um, I think a lot of people have asked me, like, does this affect your clients in any way? Does this affect anybody coming to hire Dockyard? And the answer is no. We have not had anybody that said we're not willing to hire you. I think after the second year blog post, somebody on Hacker News put uh, a comment in there saying, oh, this might make me think twice. And then there was like five comments after that saying like, oh, it's great that this person's being this, you know, this honest and this open with, with everything. So uh, it has not had any effect upon us. We've had steady growth, actually pretty good growth, especially over this past year. Um, and I get to you know, share my story. So uh, those would be my reasons for doing so. I wonder if people that read Hacker News um, often are in charge of making purchasing decisions regarding. No, <laughs> I think people that read Hacker, especially people who comment on Hacker News, I think that you know, <laughs> you know differentiate people who read Hacker News and people who comment on Hacker News. And I think the people who comment on Hacker News, especially, are um, uh, probably. Um, I don't know. I, I think that there's not fantastic information to get off of Hacker News comments. There are definitely, you know, some uh, some diamonds in the rough, but overall it's just like the rest of the internet. You know, the comments should probably be ignored uh, almost wholesale. I feel like there's a whole set of popular things that I just have never caught on to, like Hacker News and Reddit to some degree and Instagram even that, uh, yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm, we, maybe I'm we, too old. We cross post on a bunch of social sites. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I liked Hacker News for a while. I think earlier on when it was very much more technology focused, and same thing with Reddit. Like especially at the beginning, Reddit was very technology focused, and um, I mean you can still go into your subreddit, which is great. But Hacker News is uh, I don't know. It's kind of lost favor with me in terms of my everyday reading. Uh, but we we will still post our blog post there. Yeah. So I saw you uh, snarkily tweet about some comments that you heard from. I don't know if they were literally HBS grads or 
or sort of <laughs> metaphorical. Yeah, uh, I ended like, up deleting it. That, that was an example of like I tweet something and then like I thought better of it. Like, okay, I can delete this. But I, I'll, I'll summarize what it was. Um, uh, I get contacted. I, I do a lot of engineers get contacted by um, uh, by you know people looking to hire them all the time. Um, but I'm also CEO of a company. And it, it kind of blows my mind that um, uh, somebody that is just looking to start a company who just graduated from business school would think that I would go and leave, you know, being CEO of a company to go be an engineer at their company. Um, I mean, there are going to be, maybe there's that like one in a million chance that I miss out on, but it, overall I think is kind of, uh, I'm like, come on, what, do you, what is this? What are you thinking? Well, I think the great thing about that is that a huge portion of HBS grads would go into professional service industries in one way or another. I mean, yeah. they usually wouldn't go into software consultancies, but certainly many would be in management consulting and strategy consulting, and, and some would become lawyers, and uh, others become investment bankers, which is really a professional service. So the, the the sort of looking down their nose at you is ironic to me for that reason. Well, I don't I don't think it was looking down at my nose at me, I because I, they were interested in me enough to want to hire me. I think that's flattering in its own right. But at the same time, it's like they didn't take that extra second to like even look at my profile to say like, okay, this person's like C-level executive at a company. Um, they're, they're probably not going to be interested yeah. uh, or maybe they did. I don't, I don't know, but I just, I, it's kind of like the same annoyance I have at recruiters. Um, and that's, you know, they're, why would I go and you know take this position somewhere else? If I, you know, from a C-level exec. I think it's fair to say that, that it's, it's a common reaction of people when they hear that you're involved in a consultancy of some sort to wonder if that's like a, a temporary port. Uh, before you go into a full-time other thing. I think that's like a common thing. So so I have personal experience with this. Uh, I was a recruiter for three years. Um, right out of college, my father's company, recruitment company, I worked there. And I would say that, and despite it being my father's company, that you know he's one of the good ones in that um, there's a lot of research and background information that they look into in order to qualify uh, the candidates that they're, they're pushing to their clients. And I mean, it takes two seconds to say, okay, LinkedIn, Brian Cardarella works at Dockyard, see little executive. Okay, let's look at Dockyard's website. Oh, they have close to 20 people working there. I mean, there's something here. Perhaps this is not really you know, <laughs> right. a good lead for me. It's like that let me Google that for you website. I agree that yeah. it, it wouldn't take much, but if, if you were... You know, if you were inclined to be lazy, then you hear a consultancy and sometimes get a little, or I don't, but, but people get a little dismissive. Yep. Uh, well, one thing that I think is interesting about, about this post in light of that whole theme is that, um, it really shows Dockyard from a business perspective, mostly. I mean, there's a little bit of technology sort of commentary inside, but it's mostly about what it's like to run a small business. And, and yeah. that's that's nice because because typically you hear about the technology side or the the sort of client bragging, but but not so much about the business of it, and it, it makes it feel a bit more real. Yeah, we um, I think if you were to look at uh, the other two uh, retrospective blog posts, um, you'll notice this trend of it becoming more business focused, and that is probably uh, more in line with my having come off of everyday engineering duties and really taking full ownership of the CEO duties. Um, the first year I was still on client projects. Second year I was probably on client projects for half the year. This year I've been entirely dedicated to running the, running the company. So it's really, I mean, it's a blog post written from my perspective. And um, I think it just depends upon where my head's at at that given point in time. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if you said that the first point of you know, the, the number one objective of the post is catharsis, then, you know, it, it wouldn't be catharsis for you if it wasn't about your daily life, I guess. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's jump ahead into, I think, a theme um, maybe about halfway down this blog post, which is about the idea that you're looking for technologies that that one people are looking to hire people for already that you don't go in and actually do much convincing about which platform or framework to use. I thought that was interesting. And then the second thing I thought was interesting related to that was that you're picking tools that you think are good answers for someone to have come to for which the pool of resources is small, which seems obvious when you say it, but yeah. So I think there's two questions there. First, you're asking, you're asking about our marketing strategy for Ember JS. And the second was, um, our reason for going after niche technologies. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay. So, so the first, the marketing strategy, um, this was something that it actually was really difficult for me to come to because I don't have any marketing background at all. And we ended up hiring a CEO coach, uh, who has a lot of marketing background to, to help me get to it. Um, I sat down with a CEO coach on the first day and he said, sell me on Ember.js. And I start. I was coming up with all these good, like technology reasons to do it, but he's like, okay, I'm a, um, I'm a chief digital officer. I don't have a lot of technology background. I know that we have to be using technology, uh, sell me on Ember.js. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't come up with like a value proposition for Ember.js outside of, uh, my own personal opinions around the framework. Like, uh, um, you know, convention over configuration, big deal. Um, this is going to help normalize your teams. Okay, there's some value proposition there, but not significantly amount. And there's nothing really I could differentiate there on like from knowing nothing to okay, how do we get to Ember.js? So uh, part of that background was how do we kind of move backwards into Ember.js? In the uh, what I came up with was um, okay, uh, we have to broaden the scope somewhat. Um, if we look at Ember.js and we say, uh, okay, Ember.js, um, how do we sell that? We say uh, we have to sell them on the ideas, that, on, on the idea that single-page applications are the wave of the future. Okay, that that's a broader step. And that can that can lead not just to Ember.js, it can lead to multiple different things. But we just have to justify that Ember.js is the best way of building single-page apps. Um, however, single-page apps as a concept still is still is somewhat uh, not sellable to uh, to the people that we'd be selling into these companies at. Uh, so the broader concept is user experience. Now, this is something that you know you can get your teeth into, um, and there's two perspectives that we can take on it. Uh, as an existing company with an existing product that wants to uh, improve their market share, um, it's easy to understand that improving upon the usability of their product in some way is going to uh, yield a higher client engagement, a customer engagement, and get higher conversion rates. Um, same thing if it is a new product being introduced into the market. Uh, there may be existing competitors. So how do they differentiate themselves? Uh, they may be offering very similar services, but if they offer a better uh, user experience for their product, then that is probably going to help them compete better. Uh, so at that point, if we can convince them that user experience is the is like the uh, uh, the first part of the funnel, that meaning that, okay, we have to provide a better user experience. Then we just have to sell them that single-page web, web apps are the best way to improve upon their user experience for the web. Uh, and then we have to sell them that Ember.js is the best way to uh, build uh, single-page applications. And then at the end of that funnel, Dockyard just has to be there 
and we have to defend the position that we're the best at building single uh, sorry we're the best at building Ember.js applications. Along the way, at each phase of that funnel, we're going to lose people. Um, some people may think that okay, single page apps not for us. We want to go native. Okay, we lost those people. Um, they get through single page apps. And they say okay, Angular, uh, React. We're going to go in that direction. We lose them. But if they've gone through that funnel and they get to Ember.js, then we know that they are a pretty high, highly qualified marketing lead. And this is going to be someone that we don't have to really waste a lot of time um, figuring out if they're a qualified sales lead. Yeah, it's an interesting strategy, but it makes it makes sense. I think it's I think it's brave in some ways in that it it really takes you out of a lot of of opportunities upstream where maybe they don't know what they need. But yeah, but I mean we're, we're small enough right now that we can't chase every technology. Right? Right. Like he, people come to us. I actually have a client that. Um, uh, we're talking to right now that wants to do Ember.js on the front end and Node on the back end. And I told him, we don't do any Node. I mean, I have my own opinions on Node. I don't like it. But we don't also have any core competency in Node. Like, I'm on the Ember CLI core team. If there is a core team, I'm on it. Um, I'm a core committer on the project. And we use Node as far as, like, building out Ember. But we don't, Dockyard doesn't deliver any backend services for Node. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense for us to sell our services into a company if we can't claim any core competency in it, because that's just going to lead to a lot of problems. I think a lot of consultancies and a lot of freelancers just say, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I'm a jack of all trades. I can learn it. And then you get like 80% through the project, and that's when everything turns to shit. Um, we want to avoid that as much as possible. So we're going to we're going to stay on track of selling services that we know that we're experts in. And we're going to build up our expertise and other services that we think are strategic to our future. And we, when we get comfortable at a certain level, then we'll start selling those services as well. Yeah, I think I think you said it well too. That as long as you're, you know, not IBM, I think the strategy works fine. You know, that there's yeah. a, there's a lot of work in in just Ember apps. You know, and and as long as they're going to find you when they search for, you know, a potential Ember consultancy, well, you should probably win a pretty good number of them. Yeah, and it's um, uh, we also think Ember is a growing market as well. Um, it's especially I, like this year, twenty fifteen. I think we're going to see a lot of growth uh, in, in what's with Ember. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, it's interesting so we, as a, as a quick aside about the case mm-hmm. for Ember or single page apps or whatever you, you want to call them. Uh, I find the most convincing argument to to sort of the the widest number of people or the widest. Um, cross-section of, of the, the market is just the option value of separating the client from the server. Right. But that's a, that's a technology value proposition. I don't right? agree. I don't agree with that at all. No, I think it's oh, so. directly a business value proposition. That's actually my point. Can you, you explain that? Yeah. So, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the, the most businessy version of that that works every time for me. So like, let's say you're talking to a, a business that sells to businesses, which is the majority of what I do. Um, you know, so someone in transportation that deals with, with big companies shipping stuff or, or anything like that. Um, they're used to dealing with integration problems where their customer or their partner or their supplier, all of the above need to integrate with their systems. And it's a constant source of pain, right? Because Mm -hmm. their systems weren't really built for it. They have to, you know, dedicate some decent portion of their own IT staff to helping the, customer integrate. They, they never have the, the APIs quite right to do that, etc. And uh, the idea that 
if their system, their the the customer in this example system was built on their API that their customers and suppliers and other trading partners, so to speak, could use, that that would solve the problem of what the hell are we going to do to integrate with these thousand people is so compelling to business people that I think it gets them interested almost immediately in the idea of splitting the back end from the front end. Well, I mean, there, there is a value prop for uh, like legacy type systems, right? Where you're just essentially putting a lipstick on pig. Um, we have some clients that are using very old backends. And if it was... That's kind of uh, that's kind of negative, by the way. I think I, I wouldn't... I mean, saying anything that's a little bit old is a pig is, seems a bit rough. But, okay. but I, I think you know what I'm getting. It's, it's the analogy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just... Whereas you have... Um, uh, if it's a Rails... You're selling Rails services. You pretty much have to replace the front end and the back end wholesale. Um, if you're selling Ember.js then you can still consume an existing backend. You can just have to, you just replace the front end and you're just, you can improve upon the usability because your customers at the end of the day, you know, perhaps a response time is going to have a part of a usability factor. And that's where the backend, uh, the, the backend can play out, but they may consider this to be a whole brand new product. Whereas the, uh, the, the actual effort for building on the product was half the cost because they only really redid the front end and still the same backend. Yeah, yeah, so I get that. I'm just saying that I think that the uh, when I have conversations with people about that, the option value created by also redoing the back end so that you know you not only could do an Ember app, but you could do um, a native app or whatever sort of um, uh, custom apps in combination with a, a trading partner. That that that's what gets that's what gets the business side the most excited. Have you really seen a lot of that? Because we, like we, yeah. we, we're working with a lot of Fortune 500s, and we actually are not seeing any interest in doing uh, multiple deployments. So they're they're looking for uh, to go all web. They're looking to actually replace replace native with uh, with mobile web. Oh, I um, think I generally agree with that. But but if uh, so, strip out the native part of my comment and just say. Um, your own web clients and then other people's either web or HTTP, not web, but you know, web service clients that so consuming multiple APIs. Yeah. Yeah. So that multiple applications would consume the API. That's ultra common Mm -hmm. in my experience, at least. Um, Okay. I mean, I'm not really seeing much of a difference there between being able to do that on the rails end though. Right. Like you can still consume multiple APIs and pull that into a central source. And then it's just a matter of like, how am I, now talking between my, my, you know, completely rendering on the server or my completely rendering on the client. Yeah. So I, I would agree with that, except that the, uh, at least in my experience, and I, I would assume, well, I'll ask if you've had a similar one that if you build it all within one app, the API, you know, you're not using your API. So you'd be, you know, let's pretend that the, the, HTTP API, the web service API is like the public API. And then all the rest is your private API that tons of your own web app would be built with the the private API, so to speak. And then, you know, when someone wants to integrate with something, inevitably there's like 30% of it that's not exposed by the API. And if you use your own API to build your, your client, then that's never a problem because, you know, by definition, anything that someone would want to do is enabled. Well, assuming you're doing it. Well, I mean, what, what we have run into is um, a definite need to uh, have all the data flowing through a single choke point. Um, and so having a proxy that ends up being the back end API that uh, our 
front-end Ember applications is consuming. So as far as our front-end application is concerned, there's that single API that's consuming. And then the proxy API will then proxy out to the multiple services right. uh, that are there. Um, so, I mean, I mean, what's really nice about, about Ember and especially Ember data is that we have so much flexibility on how we can consume and uh, really normalize all that data coming in. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So let's nerd out about Ember for a minute. Okay. Uh, tell me about uh, a couple of your favorite examples of what Ember makes possible or easy that just is so much better than what you've done in, in previous things. Um, I mean, this is not a specific Ember thing, but I really like how uh, doing heavy single page application development allows us to really build out uh, more interactive applications. Um, we saw a little bit of it with Backbone and I mean, okay, here, here, my specific Ember uh, love is the, the convention over configuration. It's not this mess. It's not this complete, like, mud, ball of mud that Backbone was. We inherited a lot of Backbone projects, and every single one was built differently. Um, we had no consistency. I know that the Backbone fanboys are screaming Marionette, Marionette right now. But as far as I know, Marionette is not an official Backbone project. It's actually uh, being maintained by someone else. It's probably... I don't know enough about Backbone to say whether or not that's true. But that was my, that that's what I thought at least at the time. Um, so I started researching um, other alternatives, and I saw that Angular was picking up a lot of steam. Um, uh, however, from a business perspective, it didn't make a lot of sense to go into Angular if Ember was available because Ember was still this small market that I thought that had a lot of potential, not just because of the technology, but also because of the people behind it in their track record, uh, namely you hit a cats. So if we could get in early and we could say, okay, we establish our presence here and then we can just ride that wave as it goes up. Whereas if we jumped into angular, if we, or if we jumped into backbone, we'd have to play catch up all day long and we'd never be more than just an also ran. Um, so what I like about Ember is it's really pushing JavaScript as a technology forward. Um, it is ad adopted and really got involved with the, with the conversation around uh, ES6. Um, the build tool, Ember CLI, uh, as far as I know, was the first official build tool for any of the frameworks to really push, like, okay, we're going to be um, uh, not just like these crappy grunt tasks. I, I hate grunt. Um, like doing grunt tasks or we're going to really have something that is fast compile, like something that is almost immediate. Uh, one of the goals of Broccoli, the build tool, uh, the build layer underneath Ember CLI is like less than 250 millisecond build times, no matter the size of the assets. I mean, that's a little ambitious at times, but for the most part, you get there. Um, so it, I can cycle people on and off of our Ember projects uh, internal at Dockyard, and they ramp up extremely fast. Um, from a uh, from a uh, from a pure engineering perspective, um, my interest has really been around. Um, that uh, uh, Ember is I don't know, just really fun to work with. I know that people complain about like the ramp up time. Oh, it's so big. It's so difficult to learn. But in reality, I mean, it's almost like you, you spend a lot of time at the beginning learning the general concepts, but then it kind of flattens out. Whereas uh, my understanding of other frameworks is that it continues and you, you know, the, the, the curve keeps going up and that's not a very good explanation, but um it is also what I like is that Ember has been um, on top of the future as well. It's not just saying, okay, uh, we are, uh, here's our 
uh, feature set and then we're done. Ember is looking towards what other frameworks are always doing well and trying to incorporate the best into it. So a great example of that is with React. Um, the core team for Ember recognized and said, oh, React is doing uh, their rendering layer much better than we are. Uh, they're doing what's called DOM diffing. Uh, so they actually write uh, for each, I think, cycle of like what you're doing. They write to an, uh, a DOM that's not in your viewport uh, that's detached and they'll render to that. That's much faster because uh, in memory. And then they'll just bring that diff dom in and then that'll be imposed upon your current DOM. Uh, so they uh, they built HTML bars, which is the new uh, templating engine for em for Ember, uh, with that in mind. And uh, I believe the bench like, the spinning wheel benchmark, which can I mean, take it for what it's worth, but it actually puts Ember's rendering speed uh, just about as fast, or maybe a little faster than React's. Hmm. So uh, Ember believes very much so that um, it got some of its very core concepts done right, like convention over configuration, some of like the uh, the idea that everything is built around the URL, that URL is king on the web. If I share a URL with you, you should see exactly what I share. It got those things right. And now whenever another framework gets introduced, okay, maybe this framework might get an aspect of what Ember is doing better. Then Ember just has to match what they're doing, and then Ember will always have the best in class of everything. And I, I really like uh, those concepts. So back on the learning curve topic, I, so I learned Ember recently, and I found the the first three weeks to be pretty rough. Yeah. Not, I mean, you know, not the end of the world rough, but full of challenges. And uh, But then I agree. I think I, I haven't heard someone describe it the way you just did, and I would also agree that it flattens out, that after a while... You know, once you've got the basic concepts down, or maybe not the basic concepts, but, you know, intermediate plus concepts down, you, you kind of know the tools you need to do a lot of stuff. I think that it, it kind of flies in the face of the way that we've always expected to write JavaScript. Um, as, as Ruby developers, um, I think Ruby did a lot of good to impose, especially Rails, like conventional reconfiguration, say, here's the way we're doing things, or, you know, we have to have a level of quality into the code that we're writing. Um, whereas JavaScript has been this real, just, uh, I call it the rat king. Um, and for those listening, you can go look up what a rat king is. Um, but the, the rat king of JavaScript is, um, uh, it's this, oh, man, I want to have my code be so flexible. Like, I don't want to have any rules imposed upon me. It's the JavaScript hipster argument, right? Uh, whereas in reality, when you have limitations placed upon what you should be doing with your code is when you can actually focus on getting real things done. Um, that That's a pretty well-known concept, I think, in just software development in general. I don't have to worry about the boilerplate. I don't have to worry about building out a build system. I don't have to worry about how the URL is going to work. Like These are all just common things that should go across from project to project. I don't have to rebuild them every single time or figure out different ways to build them. Um, now I can focus on just the business value for my product. And Yehuda and Tom et al. are wicked smart. We're both from the Boston area, so I can say this. So, you know, they're wicked smart. And the idea that I'm going to come up with a better convention most of the time than what they have is kind of silly. Uh, you know, it just isn't the case. And, and in fact, I love when my gut isn't 
isn't in line with what choices um, they and the rest of the core team have made because either I learn something about my own opinion that causes me to change or, you know, I can contribute something back to the group that may be interesting. But, but like, I assume that I, I probably am wrong <laughs> in the case that I'm right. going against the grain. I mean, the other thing to consider is that Ember's core team is made up of, I think, four representing four or five companies at this point, um, whereas Angular's core team, as far as I know, is made up entirely of Google uh, employees. There may be one or two, but like it's representing Google's interests. React's core team is representing Facebook's interests. So if you look at what happened with Angular 2.0, I'm, I won't trash Angular much more, but if you look at what happened with Angular 2.0, it shouldn't be that surprising. Uh, so just a little background. Angular 2.0 say, okay, we're breaking everything in Angular. We're going this different direction. Uh, there's no migration path for your Angular 1.0 apps to Angular 2.0. And... Um, a lot of people were burnt by this, and if you, but it shouldn't be that surprising from those outside looking in that Google is just going to push a framework in a direction that you know caters its needs. Expect the same thing to happen with React someday. Facebook is going to say, okay, uh, we need to have React go in this direction because this is our product. We're just going to go ahead and do it. Whereas Ember actually has um, a team representing multiple companies, and the needs of all these companies and the community as a whole have to be taken into consideration. So any uh, uh, any idea that there's just going to be like this drastic new version written or, or these new concepts introduced that will not be gradually introduced uh, is just not going to happen with Ember. Um, any solutions that are that are built out are going to most likely come from a lot of discussion amongst um, application needs across multiple types of companies and applications, rather than you know here's how we want to implement this for Google's needs or here's how we want to implement this for Facebook's needs. So you said that you're on the, the, the committer list for Ember CLI, right? Yes. Uh, I, I think that Ember CLI may be, so that's the, the, the build tools for Ember for those that haven't used it before. I think that that may be the most important part for me in, in sort of uh, catalyzing my excitement about Ember. Because I just know yeah, myself, it, I'm, I'm, I don't know that I would have been up for also sort of rolling my all, all my the build scripts uh, that would be needed yep. to do something really professional with Ember. But that that being taken care of made me more willing to jump in because the amount of time that I would need to actually make something that I could use professionally, not just you know develop and tinker on, but but use professionally, went down yep. by like eighty percent. Yeah, so Ember CLI definitely brings a lot of nice things to Ember, uh, not just the build, but also the testing, uh, the test suite. So before Ember CLI, there was a lot of questions around how should I test my Ember applications? And this is an area where Angular was destroying Ember in. Um, Angular was very easy to test, whereas Ember was, I mean, it was, it was testable. It was just there was no straightforward way to do it. Uh, so Ember CLI actually came out of um, Yap. Uh, which has uh, two Ember, Ember Core team members on it, Chris Selden and Stefan Penner. They're, they're in New York. And um, the original project was Ember AppKit. And Ember AppKit kind of explored this idea of, okay, we're going to create a unified build system and unified project structure for Ember. Uh, once that idea was proven out, um, it was using Runt. Um, uh, they moved over to Broccoli, and they rechristened the project as Ember CLI. My involvement with Ember CLI has been primarily on the build side and specifically with add-ons. Um, my primary concern with running a consultancy is that we're able to extract out common behavior between our client projects and use this in future client projects so we can reduce our build-out time and you know improve upon our estimations. Uh, so having add-ons 
Uh, and add-ons is kind of a loose term in Ember CLI. Um, it can mean anything from adding new blueprints through generators, adding new middleware to the uh, to the development server. But specifically, my involvement was uh, uh, adding new uh, uh, new libraries to your Ember applications through add-ons. Um, so, uh, what's going to be interesting about the direction I'll be taking with that in February is um, uh, so right now. One of the primary complaints about Ember is around how uh, fat it is as a framework. And I don't really put a lot of stock into that argument outside of it. I just find it annoying. Yes, the initial footprint of the size of the file is more than what you'll find for React or Angular or Backbone or nothing. Um, however, um, it's not about where you start, it's where you end. And I, I think a good argument can be made that Ember's uh, uh, footprint of a well-built Ember application is comparable to footprints of other applications. So, however, we can still do better. And with um, uh, one of the first things that I'll be working on is actually being able to um, whitelist, um, uh, let's say, add-on files that don't need to be included in the initial footprint. So one of my libraries that I wrote is called Ember Admin that is very similar to Rails Admin in that it allows you to just like, drop in a, you know, a CRUD-based admin system. Um, not all of your users need this. Why would you need to include this in a uh, in an asset file that everyone's going to be using? So, what would be nice is that if we could then isolate, you know, these files that still get built, transpiled from ES6 to ES5, uh, but now it's sitting in its own file, and only if you go to a certain part of your application does it now get pulled in and you know start working. Uh, another library I've written, and that will reduce you know that file footprint size. Another uh, library I've written, uh, Ember CLI I18N, which adds internationalization support to Ember CLI apps. There was an existing library called Ember I18N, uh, but I wrote this one specifically for uh, Ember CLI. I, I was not involved with the other one. Um, this library uh, is one that gets very, very large because we have pluralization rules that you're not always going to need. Um, you may have internationalization rules that you... that not every single user needs. If you're supporting five languages, what are the odds that you know everyone's going to need those five languages? So uh, a kind of crazy idea I have is, let's say, um, uh, let's say you want to change over to a different language. Now, um, actually, I may not, let me let me back up for a second and explain an aspect of Ember CLI. A big part of it uh, that makes Ember CLI work is this thing called a resolver that allows you to look up uh, different assets inside your inside your build. So if you say like, I need the model, the person model, um, there's a certain uh, path that is used internally in your application. And then it just pulls in that, uh, that module. And so now you can use it. And for people uh, that are familiar with rails, that, that feels natural. Like, yeah, even so though it, it's not automatic, it feels automatic yep. if you're used to rails. Yeah. So it's like, it's a part of the magic, right? The, yep. the magic of Ember. Um, so what I think would be really cool is if let's say the resolving fails and it says, okay, um, this is a resource that we did not find in the assets that are currently in memory. If you have a list of whitelisted like remote assets and you say for this given path, it's associated with this URL. And when it gets to the failure point, it'll then check the whitelist and say, okay, this path remote URL, let's go do a, uh, a, a, um, a jQuery, uh, a get script. And then it will go get that script, pull it into memory. And now that will, that will be part of uh, the runtime. And so you're reducing your file footprint says, again, uh, 
So those are ideas that I'm going to be working on in February, a very long-term idea um, that I may or may not be involved with. I don't know if I'll be allowed to be involved with this, but is uh, called tree shaking. So um, tree shaking is uh, if you build up a dependency graph of how you're relying upon different aspects of uh, not just your application, but the framework and the libraries. So you can declare that through import statements. You can say like import ember slash view or something like that. Uh, and now you could say, I'm, you know, your, your dependency graph says I need the view. And then that view, uh, that view module then may have its own dependencies. So rather than just compiling Ember as one large footprint, why not be able to walk the, the dependency graph and then say, okay, we only need these modules. And so for the final trend, the final comp compiled asset file will only include the modules that we actually need. So that should also reduce the footprint. Like with Ember CLI, you get Ember data uh, as part of it. If you're not using Ember data, then, you know, if we're not actively importing or using it anywhere in our application, then we should be able to not have it part of the, the final compiled output. So, so those are ideas that um, I, I'd like to be involved with and uh, help push forward because I think it's going to help Ember in general. So would you, would you mind giving me the, like, three-minute overview of how at the add-ons work? I saw that there were some... Uh, some changes in the last, I don't know, week or two about how, how you don't have to run the the generators after you install them. But I I haven't looked in much detail into how it's working in the first place and why you needed to ever do that. Um, so so just give me the, the sort of the quick once over on that. So I'm not familiar with that specific change. Um, but uh, add-ons give you uh, basically... So add-ons are... I'm going to be mixing up terminology here. I'm going to say that they're similar to Rails engines uh, as, as kind of like a, a, uh, you know, a way for you to you know, model out, like, okay, what's the concept of an add-on? Like you can add in runtime code to your application. You can add in generators to your Ember CLI. So you can say, like, Ember generates blah, and now you have this generator that does blah. Um, you, can, you can encapsulate this and distribute them as node modules so that I can share like my code with you and you can pull them in. Basically they're, they're allow you to do like real uh, Ruby gems in a sense. So when, um, after you install one, most of them, you have to run a generator right after. Is no, that, not, not necessarily. That's it's, not true. It's, um, you, you may need to do a generator if it has to install external dependencies. So if they're like, some of them are doing like wrapping around power. Uh, components and so if you have to install a Bower component, it may need to like run the generator for that. Um, so describe that for me because that's the part that I think I think the majority of the ones that I've used have used Bower, and that's probably the reason why you use the generator. So what's actually going on there? Uh, so originally, what we we figured was a good solution was that during the uh, the node, uh, sorry, the npm the module installation mm -hmm. is that when we, we would run the Bower install. I don't remember the reason why that changed. There, there was a good reason. I can't remember offhand why it was, but the idea was that, okay, we're not going to force a Bower install during the node install. I think there was like some race condition that can happen. And there was a, you know, I don't know, 10% chance of failure uh, for whatever reason. Um, so the idea then is like, okay, you install your node module. And if it's required to uh, install Bower, then the node module will add Bower through a gener so add the Bower dependency through a generator to your Bower.json file. I mean, I mean, let me, let me break this down even further. This entire mess is necessary because 
uh, the JavaScript package management story is a complete mess. Um, you have node modules, you have Bower components. Bower is supposed to be handling front client side JavaScript. Node is supposed to be handling server side JavaScript. And then the NPM team came out and said that they want to also be handling client side um, JavaScript. And then neither of the two package managers actually do any sort of dependency isolation. Neither of the two package managers do any version locking, like real version locking. Bower, I think, is absolutely horrid. I think it's a terrible package manager. Uh, the fact that it expects you all the time to install dependencies off of GitHub or off of Git in general is ridiculous. Um, because now I know that that Bundler does the same thing, but its primary uh, repository is actually RubyGems, where on RubyGems, you have one version for everything. And if you try to, you can't delete versions off of it. You can yank, um, but you can't delete permanently. Uh, so whereas on GitHub, if you're linking it to a, uh, a given repository, what if somebody, you know, pulls a, uh, uh, I don't I, I What if they rename it? Yeah, with a, well, well, GitHub will do a 302 redirect uh, or 301, I forget which one, if they rename it. But if, let's say someone says, okay, screw the internet, I'm killing my online identity, and they delete the project, gone. And if there's some large company that is depending upon, like, uh, depending upon that package being there, they're going to have a failed deploy. Mm -hmm. um, what if they, what if you are depending upon a, ver like, uh, Bower depends upon tagged version releases on your Git repo. What if you rename your tags, which you can do very easily? That screws it up. Um, so there's there's so many dumb things. Like, I'm this really gets me like upset. Like, just the JavaScript community is stupid when it comes to package management. There's no two ways around it. Well, I wasn't that familiar with. I wasn't that familiar with all of it. And I tell you, I, maybe there is a blog post that goes into this. But I it tripped me up for about a day and a half of not like since I hadn't been knee deep in this world and maybe assumed that some of the conventions were more similar to what I was used to. I, I find it, yeah. I found it tricky at first for this reason. Yeah. So like we're, we're finding it tricky to support both on Ember CLI and we're doing our best. Um, but we have this kind of convoluted system to try to reduce the amount of potential errors. And yes, that requires you to jump through some extra hoops. So that, that is why that exists. Um, I actually just read about a package management system the other day called JSPM, um, which I thought was really cool because it does a lot of the things that I thought uh, it should be doing. It's doing version locking. Um, it's still using GitHub, which it's not very good, but you know, it's early in JSPM. However, uh, the big problem there is that it's using uh, something called System.js uh, for its for JSPM's own build, which is super slow. Uh, so I, I think that I, w I would wish that hopefully there could be some way to take those concepts over. But the other thing is like every other week, there seems to be a new package manager that comes up for JavaScript. And this is, this is just the problem in JavaScript land in general, even though I do a lot of my everyday development in JavaScript, I really dislike uh, the lack of um, uh, the lack of uh, professionalism isn't a good word, but there's, there's a lack of like, like real thought put into some of the, some of what's going on in JavaScript. It's just kind of like, you know, just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. I think there was a quote uh, from the Node team about, um, I forget the exact quotes, like a thousand roses or something like that, and then they're just going to pick the one that works. It's not a really good way to build out software. I think you have to take, you know, existing use cases and uh, be informed based upon that. And like package management is a solved problem in most other uh, 
in other uh, libraries and sorry, other languages and other frameworks. We know what the problems are. We know how to solve them. And in JavaScript, they're just saying, nope, we're doing something different. And uh, it's it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I uh, I agree. And, all that and, to and, say, all that all that to say that the npm team has they have written a blog post about how they want to do some of this stuff, but I haven't seen much movement on it. Yeah. All right. I, I need to uh, I need to read a sponsor bit. Okay. Because <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Totally. All right. Uh, first sponsor today is Codeship, uh, and then after this, uh, let's let's uh, switch gears and talk a bit about Ember Data. If you don't mind? Cool. Okay. So Codeship's a free continuous delivery service that's real simple to use. They offer 100 builds per month for five private projects for free. The whole product just went through a, a pretty big visual revamp. I thought it was pretty good before. It's even nicer now. Sort of like the iOS. Uh, 6 to iOS 7 uh, slash 8 change. I think it sort of had a similar feel. Anyhow, you can use CodeShip uh, to uh, set up continuous integration and a few easy steps in your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for multiple languages and uh, test frameworks. You can easily integrate with GitHub or Bitbucket for code hosting and then deploy to wherever your servers are. Uh, Start out with CodeShip's free plan. Setup only takes about three minutes you can find out more at codeship.com slash five by five ruby if you use the offer code five by five ruby you get 20 percent off any plan for three months they have a blog at blog.codeship.com that's uh that's pretty good has a lot of updates lots of interesting topics um i've used them now for quite a while uh and uh for all my projects and and really like it and they're also a a boston-based company so yep yeah they're in boston and uh one of my friends nick coffier works there yeah, I, I'm very. I've said this before, but I'm very impressed by them. I think that the the product is quite good, but I think as a company, they're very interesting. They're they sort of market themselves in a way that most companies wish they could market themselves. Um, yeah, they they started coming about. Maybe they're doing more than like supporting Rails CI now, uh, but they started like pushing a product around the same time that we were getting out of Rails. So I actually have not used them. Oh, I use it for Ember too. Oh really? Uh-huh. Okay, so see that's I, I didn't know that they were supporting more builds. It's just regular CI, so it's like a Travis competitor. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, very similar. I think that they're um I like it better. I've used I've used Travis and Semaphore and maybe one other, but Coachips uh my preference not. I actually found out about them cuz they sponsor the show, but then ended up switching to them because I liked it better. Yeah, my, I like I do like Travis. I don't mean to, you know, talk about the competitor uh but no, that's fine. one of my one of my problems i've experienced more recently travis is that the builds are taking longer and longer uh because of how many people are using travis and so we will submit even on the uh the private builds um seem to be taking too long so uh i i mean we've i'm always open to alternatives yeah well i think on the uh, with CodeShip, I'd say that that it probably has something to do with sort of the underlying um, technologies. But you know, running the the your Ruby test suite, I think, is quite fast. Running my Ember test suite, not so fast. Um, well, it's not even a matter of like the actual time, just like running it. It's like how long it sits in the queue to wait to start running. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's. I mean, hey, that's. I think a function of how many. Uh, simultaneous Users. builds you can have at the same time, yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I mean on the Travis side. So for like open source uh, projects, it will 
don't know. It, it's it, oh yeah, I just meant that they're they're like they, they constrain for the entire open source community how many can run it. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I totally understand. So uh, so let's talk Ember data some. Yeah. I uh, in my somewhat limited but but growing experience with Ember, my the biggest love hate relationship that I have is with Ember data. Why is that? Well, because I, I love it for, I think, the obvious reasons, right? The idea that it provides both a, a relatively convenient way or very convenient when things are all set up to persist data uh, on the back end um, server is, and get data from the server for that matter, is great. Um, the I found the learning curve of getting the serializers and what's the other side? Uh, Adapters. Adapter. That, that I just ran into some number of challenges. Like, for example, I think 50% of the challenges I hit had to do with um, polymorphic types. There was, yeah, they just made a, uh, I think it was actually this week, someone just got a PR merge to solve a lot of polymorphic issues in Ember Data. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, I've been on some of the uh, on some of the issues and submitted one patch, but... You know, it feels like it feels like Ember Data is is extremely ambitious to me, and it is. I mean, it it in the sense that I don't think there, there's any other JavaScript framework out there that has a data layer as deep as Ember Data. Do you do you guys use Ember Data? Yes, we've been using it uh, since the beginning. Um, you know, warts and all. Like I think that uh, for a while, Ember Data was the uh, the thing that people. Uh, that we're looking to uh, denigrate Ember pointed at. You saw a lot of stuff on Hacker News where, uh, uh, you know, perhaps a post would talk about why not to use Ember, and most of it had to do with Ember data. Um, and then I think close to a year ago, Yehuda uh, recognized those problems and said, "Okay, we need to reboot this," and they called it the JJ Abrams reboot, and because JJ <laughs> Abrams reboots things. And um, since then, it's been really, really nice. Um, of course, is nicer than it was after the reboot. Uh, it's nicer today than it was after the reboot. Things are still being added. But uh, what's what I think people's primary issues with it originally was that Ember Data said, okay, you have to conform your backend API to this. Ember Data expects this backend API. And so that kind of rules out scenarios where perhaps the, the front-end team doesn't have any say over how the back-end team is supposed to do things. Um, and that's obviously and that's a big where, deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's where the serializers and the adapters came in. And now you can not just uh, change how a given like API you're consuming is going to like go through your system, um, but you can actually do that on a model-to-model basis. So you don't have just an application adapter that is global for your app. You can have like a people adapter and a people serializer and really customize it down pretty well. Especially, again, I know you didn't like the analogy, but lipstick and on pig, um, some of the backends that we've worked with um, have had really bad normalization issues. Like when we're talking about systems that are 10 years, 12 years old that we're having to consume, um, they don't really have any conformity on how the data is coming through or how we're supposed to be submitting data. Uh, some of them have like a fake rest. And so being able to normalize that in some way, having again, that choke point. I think a lot of like really good design in software allows you to create choke points where you can like say, okay, everything's going through this funnel and we're going to change it in some way. And so that upstream, we can deal with, like, perhaps we have a very advanced person dealing with this choke point, and then we have some less advanced people upstream being able to, you know, stay within our own conventions. Right. So it's kind of obfuscating the, uh, like, the 
the bad stuff from everybody else. What standard have you, what, what convention have you gone with on new projects on the server side in terms of how the API is structured? Have you gone with one? Like our JSON two, API or whatever. Oh, um, our last Rails project that had Rails as a backend, we just closed out three months ago. It was probably an eight-month project, and we were using um, active model serializers. So that, uh, I think, at the time, was using a different JSON API standard. JSON API has gone through several revisions. I haven't really kept up with what's going on there. Um, but my understanding was that active model serializers, that version we were using, was conformed to some version of JSON API at the time that worked with Everdata. So yeah, we had some sort of like normalization layer that we were putting all of our JSON through. I'm pretty interested in that topic right now. I feel like um, in terms of the convention over configuration, just theme of, of what we've been talking about, that having mm -hmm. a convention to go with on, on the structure of the API just saves so much heartache in both directions. I um, Yeah, there, there's uh, Tom Dale on the Ember core team, he had some quote, I forget where it was, but um, when they started looking into building out Ember data, uh, there was no, there was no standard, no spec on how uh, APIs should be producing their data. And so that was the, uh, and for those that don't know, the JSON API project came out of the Ember core team. That was Yehuda that started it. And I believe that Steve Klabnik now is heading it up. Um, but that would, that came out of this desire to at least say, and start a conversation around how there should be some sort of um, agreed upon specification for how uh, applications should be emitting their data. Yeah, I think it's pretty close to being right, so to speak. I, uh, I've been using it on a few projects recently, and I think that there are too many cases in it that it allows for discretion. I actually would rather they uh, eliminate some of the can and mays and shoulds and switch to more musts because mm -hmm. it's easier to then write libraries that depend on or, or you know easier to write libraries that interface with it if you don't have to handle a hundred different cases yeah but uh i started to use a uh and contribute to a gem called json api dash resources which is sort okay. of an alternative to uh serializers that not just handles this it doesn't just handle the serialization side but also gives you a really easy way to exploit expose the endpoints so it gives yeah you that's dan jeb right yep yep yeah yep. so he he's a good friend he's he lives right up in new hampshire I'm a big fan of that project. I, I feel like it. I feel like it does not get a ton of attention right now, but it's really quite solid. And, uh, anyways, so I've been, I, I was just spending this morning actually working on it. Yeah, you should have Dan on the show. Dan is like the example of Carrie, like you know, speak softly and carry a big stick. In that he is very you know soft spoken. He doesn't really you know evangelize himself and his work too much. But the stuff he does is excellent. Uh, another really good project that he worked on is Orbit JS. Um, if you don't, I don't know that one. So orbit JS handles, um, uh, imagine you have, um, okay. So a good, a good analogy to this is like Google doc, right? So you have your Google doc open. Someone else opens up Google doc and you're both editing the file at the same time. How do you handle that on the back end? How do you handle, um, like diffs and data that are coming through and how do you actually disperse all that information so that it is consistent across, not just the back end, but all the clients that are connecting at it. Uh, Orbit.js is a JavaScript framework for, well, it's kind of like a data layer on how you should be handling distributed uh, data systems. Huh. And I believe that he wrote an Ember data adapter for it. 
but again, it's one of those libraries that is like amazing that uh, probably does not get enough uh, credit and attention as it deserves. Yeah, I did invite him on. Actually, he's coming on either next week or the week following. Um, cool. We were waiting until uh, hopefully JSON API goes to version one. Um, but, okay. But yeah, he I I, I, uh, I think he's one of those guys that just doesn't seem to be as known as he probably should be. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's probably through his nature. He's just he's a quiet guy, super nice, really awesome. He doesn't you know really. Uh, he just works on really cool stuff and doesn't really brag about himself too much. So, or at all, he's very, very humble. Well, good. Then I'm glad we're bragging him. Okay, <laughs> good. Yeah, no, it. everyone should get to know Dan. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So we had two sponsors today. So let me, uh, read the second and then let's finish up by talking about what's ahead for Dockyard in 2015. Okay. Sure. All right. The second sponsor is uh, brand new. Uh, it's called Thinkful and, uh, I actually had not heard of them before this sponsorship. So, let me tell you about what I learned. So Thinkful is a uh, uh, service that allows you to learn how to program. I'm, I'm going to talk specifically about their their learn how to program Rails um, program, but they also have um, some other uh, programs in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and jQuery. But I'll talk about Rails. So the goal is to enable you to build your first Rails app in two months. They have one-on-one -on -one mentorship, which I think sets them apart um, from some of the alternatives that they mentioned. And they're targeted at a couple of different skill levels, uh, either entrepreneurs who want to build their first MVP, maybe someone that's a little bit technical, but uh, uh, more focused on the business side that wants to have uh, a better sense as to how to build uh, at least the beginnings of their applications, or novice front-end developers uh, that are interested in taking their first step towards becoming a full-stack, uh, so to speak, uh, developers. Um, on, on that path, even if you're brand new, you hadn't been in the front end before, um, I think that their program seems applicable for a brand new developer that wants to get their feet wet. Uh, you can learn more about them at thinkful.com, that's T-H-I-N-K-full.com, slash Rails Podcast. And uh, if you sign up from that link, you'll get 10% off. So, uh, again, this is new to me. I'm interested in hearing how... It works for others. I, uh, quick aside on this. So have you seen that site called Code Mentor before? Yeah. So I am, this is like my current obsession, which is, it, it, it's, and I'm going to do, I think, uh, uh, well, I know that I'm going to do an entire episode about it, but I have, um, two times now been a mentor just to understand sort of where things are when people decide that they want to, you know, get a mentor and it's been fascinating to me because in in both of the cases that I've seen and just about every one that I can that I can infer from the request it, it's like people in a very desperate state that are either under the gun at work or have some other sort of crisis that they're trying to get through and they just need someone to talk to yep and it's a it's a very intense experience to be a met, like cuz cuz you you catch people in this very vulnerable state and I, I really actually don't like it I think it's, it's being, being the mentor or the mentee. I don't like, well, I mean, being the mentor, I mean, I like the helping part, but it's, it's upsetting to see someone in, in sort of a state of duress. I see. Uh, um, but anyways, I think that, uh, from what I've seen with that and all the different ways that people go about learning how to become a programmer, especially in the beginning, something that gives you access to someone that you can talk to yep. and, uh, 
will understand your struggle is super valuable. So anyways, go check out Thinkful if that sounds good. Cool. All right. So 2015 in Dockyard, what's what's coming up? Um, well, we have uh, our first plan is to not go out of business <laughs> twice, <laughs> as I indicated on my blog post. Um, <laughs> well, that's really the purpose of business, isn't it? To stay alive. That's my take. Uh, yes, <laughs> to a degree. Um, but I, I think that a lot of what we learned this past year was how to become a real business. And we're taking that into 2015. So, uh, for example, we actually just had our first management meeting of the year. And uh, one of the things that we spent time doing at the end of last year was assigning responsibilities in the company. So we came up with different departments. I I still want to keep a flat company as much as possible. So we're not going to go any higher than just like, okay, uh, creative director, head of design, your lead engineer, your head of user experience developer, uh, your head of operations, lead project manager, that sort of thing. Um, we have overall corporate uh, goals. I mean, corporate's a weird word to say for a company our size, but uh, we have overall goals for our company. Um, and then we had to distill that down into um, different objectives for each department on how to facilitate those goals and then the tasks in order to in order to meet those given objectives. So the idea is that if you fill out, if you complete your tasks, or at least the tasks that we think are necessary to complete the objectives, that should close out those objectives. And then if we got all of our objectives correctly, meaning that do we identify them properly, then we should be able to meet all of our goals. And the primary goal, um, uh, actually there's, I would say there's three top goals for Dockyard. Uh, it's to maintain and build upon our culture as a company. Uh, we have, uh, a pr- I think is a really good group of people. If we've been successful in any one area, it's been in hiring. Uh, we have some extremely smart people and just a really good group of people to, to work with and be friends with. Well, if you could pick so, one area to be successful in, that'd be the one to pick, by the way. I, well, uh, yeah, and then you have to figure out how to pay them, right? <laughs> and so if you can't pay them, then they yeah. go elsewhere. Um, so uh, the other the other thing is uh, we are looking to be a $5 million company um, in revenue-wise at the end of 2015. So we crossed $3 million uh, at the end of 2014. We did 1.7 in, in 2013, and we were 750 or probably around 700 uh, in our first year. So we've had this you know, good growth, um, but it's been more accidental in nature. Uh, we've really kind of played the lazy second baseman. We waited for the balls to come to us, and we've had a good number of clients come to our way. And so we, we're starting to see like our referrals pick up, um, but we also have to have some sort of strategy on how to increase our referrals, how to, how to increase our inbound leads. And we have to start uh, putting together a strategy on how to get outbound leads. We've never had one outbound lead. I've never been able to pick up a phone, call a company, and convince them to, to use Dockyard. So my goal for uh, Q1 is to get one of those. And putting together a sales pitch for Dockyard is, is part of that. Um, technology, we're, uh, like I said, we're moving away from Rails. It's never going to go away completely. It doesn't make sense. We, you know, we are pretty... I've been using Rails since before 1.0. Uh, we have, I'd say that we are more knowledgeable in Rails than anywhere else. But as a company, it's difficult for us to really uh, uh, not necessarily compete in that space, but grow in that space. There are so many other companies that are using Rails. There's so many like junior people coming out of code schools and stuff like that. I've sat in client negotiation meetings, and this is a direct quote, 
where I've quoted our rate and they said, why, why should we pay that if we can go down the street and hire someone that can do it for half as much? So part of every single uh, uh, consultancy, they have to have, well, and part of any negotiation is establishing leverage. And we've, we've decided that part of our leverage is uh, specializing in more niche technologies that we can uh, make, we can defend the position that we are, you know, one of the best at doing this. And there's very few alternatives that you have. Um, so if they want to do something that is like a, a very well-built single page application, uh, there's not a lot of con uh, consultancies out there that have more experience in doing that than, than Dockyard does. Um, and we're hoping to establish the same expertise in, I mean, our idea at least is to start establishing some expertise in Phoenix and Elixir. Um, and hopefully that becomes as important to our technology strategy as Ember has been over the past year and a half. I found it a little bit funny that because you, you made those same points pretty pretty clearly in your um, your annual update. And it, in a lot of ways, I thought that you made a pretty good case for why companies should stick with Rails. Like, in other words, you, yeah, make, you, you, made, you made a good case as to why you shouldn't, but it really yeah. was effective at making the opposite point for the customers. Absolutely. Companies should stick with Rails. There's no reason that they should go and, like, decide to jump ship into a new backend. I mean, unless there are, like, technology reasons for doing so. If they're, if they're just like, okay... Um, we're having, uh, we want to do real-time applications, right. right? Rails is not fantastic at that. Um, uh, but what, what's interesting about um, having the uh, all these new people being introduced to Rails is that it's great for product companies. Uh, the, the the like little point on the scale between demand and supply is being pushed more towards uh, you know the supply side. So that is going to help companies. Uh, negotiate their salaries and keep salaries down. So, but now I'll also from... roll my eyes a little bit at this and that for, for all of so? the people that are coming out of, of code schools, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I do not see a lot of good rails developers. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I knew do I, I don't think that. So I think that, um, this, the senior people are always going to demand extremely high salaries on rails. Um, but there's going to be this gap that exists. Like there's not a lot of like mid-level PHP developers anymore, right? There's a lot of, and maybe, maybe this PHP is not a good analogy, but if you roll back the clock like three or four years or maybe even five or six years, um, we saw the PHP land going through what currently Rails is going through. It, it had like this like mass adoption. And so everyone's kind of chasing like, oh, I should get a you know career in PHP. And so they go and they get trained up or they earn some sort of certification and so you have this like really like large base of not super knowledgeable junior people that are helping dictate um, dictate the terms of what uh, a salary should be. The other thing that uh, companies have going for it is that Rails really has been has been so successful and so good at nailing its core purpose that um, for most part a lot of Rails applications are just commodity based right now. Right, it doesn't take a lot of knowledge to bang out like probably most of the needs that companies have for, for building out Rails applications. And that was a lot of what uh, Rails set out to do. And they did an ex excellent job of doing it. So Yeah, I think you're right about that. I, most of what pe people need to build out can be done by junior people. I think that that's probably true. So in my experience, that's true for the first, you know, if this was a marathon, the first mm -hmm. mile or two, that's true. I think once you get a little bit in into it, right, so you've got users and you've got... You know, you're scaling and you've got uh, changes that people want to make and you have to deal with, you know, more complicated business logic than, you know, the, the, the newer people have a brutal time. But, but getting to that sort of first, getting through those first few miles of the race, I totally agree. 
Um, yeah, it's we're seeing a lot a lot of enterprise companies that are that adopted Rails are really staffing up on junior people like big time. And I think that a lot of that's probably that the man, well, some of it may be reasonable if the, if the, you know, there's a bunch of work that doesn't require tons of, tons of expertise. And then some of it may be short-sighted in that, right. you know. So you, I, I think the general like team makeups are going to be, you know, a few extremely well-paid senior people at the top and then managing a lot of junior people. <laughs> like everything else, by the way. Well, I, I think. <laughs> it's with, business with, too. Yeah, but we're not like, I think that um, getting from junior to senior in the future in rails is going to be extremely difficult because those jobs are already well established. Those jobs are already taken. Um, and, it's just, and it's just hard anyhow. Yeah. I mean, there's a competence problem. Like not everyone can be a great senior developer. I mean, at least that's my take. Um, in other words, like if, if, if there's been a flood of new people in that, that, you know, have uh, on the competency side, the ability, let's say they're max, they're, they they could max out at a five of a one to ten. Well, they're never going to be great. You know, their, their best case going to be okay. Yeah. I think there's just a lot of a lot more people in that category, you know. But anyhow, well, anyways, I thought that well, and it may have been my favorite part of your note, which was the clarity with which you said that Elixir um, and Phoenix were, were probably a good angle for you, and and how it wasn't at all about Rails. It was about the sort of the supply and demand of uh, uh, in the Rails ecosystem. So anyways. right, it's um like for us it is in it's a far enough departure from from Ruby and Rails where there are I mean it satisfied my own technology curiosities. Uh, it adds in some new possibilities for us through like a fault tolerance, significant scalability, being able to scale significantly. Uh, performance, uh, which is much higher uh, on the Ruby, uh, sorry, than on the Electric side than on mm-hmm. the uh, Ruby side, um, and uh, like Phoenix has some really nice real-time features built in, but we also get uh, some familiarity in that the syntax is not so much of a departure from Ruby. Um, functional programming, of course, is very different than object-oriented programming, uh, but Phoenix itself uh, feels familiar enough where like existing mental models that we have can be transferred over pre- uh, pretty easily. So if you were to compare the the transition from understanding Rails to Ember and that to Rails to Phoenix, which is the bigger mental leap, mental mental model leap? It's an interesting question. I think Ember is probably the biggest mental model leap. Because, it's a pretty big uh, leap, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're doing something very different. Like the only yeah. real similarity between Ember and Rails for me was the router. The router yeah, like syntactically felt very similar. And yeah, you have the concept of controllers, but controllers mean something very different in Ember than they do in Rails. Um, you have uh, similar product structure now with Ember CLI and generators and stuff that seems familiar. But as far as like building out a, uh, uh, building out a client, uh, client interface has MVC means something very different than what Rails redefined MVC to mean on the server side. Yep. Okay. So let's make this, uh, let's close out by, by uh, having you give people uh uh, some information about how they can reach out to you and maybe learn more about how to hire Dockyard. Sure. Um, so dockyard.com. Uh, you can find us at Dockyard on Twitter or at B Carterella at Dockyard. It's probably easier to spell. Uh, we are, um, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're based in Boston, but we work with uh, clients uh, primarily in the United States. Uh, we haven't had any international clients yet, so who knows? 
Maybe somebody listening can be our first international client. Um, but we're also hiring. Currently, I know that there's this whole push towards remote working and such. Um, I counter that by saying that uh, I'm terrible at managing remote workers. We're, lo- we're working on it. But if people are interested in coming to Boston and interested in Ember or Elixir or anything like that, then we'd be interested in hearing from you. Um, I'm also writing a book, The Ember Way, uh, being published by Addison Wesley. So in the same vein of the Ruby Way or the Rails Way. You dropped uh, the JS. I did drop the JS. I think that's yeah. a good call, not the S, my opinion on it, but I'm, yeah. I'm happy well, you did. It, it was more of trying to align with how uh, things are being named so at the beginning, um, everything was like Ember JS this, Ember JS that, but now there's it's Ember Conf. It's not Ember JS Conf. It's Ember CLI, not Ember JS CLI. Uh, so it's just you know again normalization, convention over configuration. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I think it was the right call. <laughs> yeah. So um, that book is TBD. <laughs> to, is that your uh, first book? Yes, it is my first book. Oh, I hope uh, you put out one of those. Uh... Uh, you know, here are the trials and tribulations blog posts about that at the end. They'll, yeah, they'll be interesting. I'll probably release the tools I'm using to build it as well. So I'm actually, funny enough, I'm using Ruby to build a uh, an Ember book. So I'm, like, I'm writing it all in Markdown and I have a build tool I wrote to compile everything, the chapters and, uh, and you know, build a table of contents based upon the chapter content. Um, so I'm just using, and Ruby's still my go-to tool for like doing simple hacking. I don't think anything will ever beat it. Um, well, you also, I mean, back to the point on your blog post, you sort of made the case for that in your blog post, I think. But the, the case for Ruby being a good tool. Uh, yeah. Anyways. I, it's, it's, it's my first love, right? Like, I, I, um, I, I worked in C and TCL and Assembler before that, but, like, Ruby was the first language I, I fell in love with. And that really, like, I, I wouldn't be where I am today without Ruby. I wouldn't be where I am today without Rails. I think a lot of other people can make that same claim. So it's, it's never any, like, uh, there's, there's no, no regrets or anything about using Ruby. It's just, I think our needs have changed. Yeah. Um, but to, to finish out, um, the Ember way book, we're, we're probably looking, um, sometime around Ember 2.0. So we're targeting Ember 2, Ember 2.0 as the, as the content of the book. So hopefully we can get it out by then, but it's going to be pretty comprehensive in nature. Um, if you're interested in that, you can go to the Ember, actually the URL is still Ember JS, but if you go, you go to the Ember and you can sign up for updates. We're trying to push out updates once a month. Um, sample chapters and stuff will be sent out. We'll probably be changing the, uh, URL over pretty, pretty soon, but the old one should still work. Cool. Well, it's too bad about the remote work thing, by the way, but that's a, that's a different conversation. Yeah, I know. We, it's not that I don't agree with the benefits of remote work and, I, I do think it's better for people personally. It's just that as a company, we have had not good success with implementing it. And so for the time being, we're looking to consolidate and then eventually we will start experimenting. So early on in, in Dockyard, I was just like, we're going to do everything. And I realized what wasn't working well for us or <laughs> right. rather what I wasn't doing well. And so I've tried to reduce what I was not doing well and focus on what we're doing well. And then when we get better at what we're doing well and we're more in a comfortable position, we'll start adding in other aspects. So remote work is not out of the question. I definitely think it's really great. It's just that not something that we're currently doing. All right. Well, Brian, uh, on behalf of all of the people that are listening, thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on and thanks for your work on Ember. 
And uh, thanks for your ranting occasionally on Twitter about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the best way to sum my ranting is care mad. I get very care mad at times. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. For those that uh, want to connect with me on Twitter, I'm barely known. <laughs>